Our scripture reading today will be from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you that um, we can hear God's word preached today. We pray that his word will go forth, not only here in Centennial, Colorado, but from beyond. Pray for Steve as he'll be preaching, that the Holy Spirit would empower him and guide him, and for our worship team as well. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Steve Hafler. I serve as the lead pastor here at Highlands Baptist Church. And what a joy to preach on this morning's Resurrection Sunday. Uh, So far, the year 2020 is shaping up exactly like no one expected. It's almost as if somebody decided to pull the let's experience an anomaly lever And the world has turned upside down. And as a result of this pandemic, we have been confronted with a heightened sense of death and an increased sense even of the fear or the panic of death as it knocks on our front door. And this is not a bad thing because reality, facing reality, facing what is next when we breathe our last breath is not a bad thing. Because all of a sudden, what has happened within the last month is many people who didn't realize before realize now that a Bentley or a Tesla does not offer supreme hope. A huge promotion does not offer stability. A 6,000 square foot home in the mountains or on the beach does not offer a peace that passes all understanding. And a Ph.D. in New Testament exegesis does not prevent death, just like fame does not provide immortality. Believers gather today, Christians, true, genuine, believing Christians gather today and every Sunday because we believe a dead man walked out of a sealed and guarded tomb on a Sunday morning approximately 2,000 years ago, never to die again. And that gives hope. And it matters because Jesus promised life after death, eternal in duration and heavenly in its quality. I want to begin with a question this morning. Why does the resurrection of Jesus even matter? It's the so what question. So what about Jesus resurrection? Because this is what the skeptics are asking, and many of them ask it genuinely. So what about a resurrection? What does it prove anyway? Well, I think they know that it matters because they ask the question And then they try to provide their own answer to sort of debunk the resurrection. Here's why it matters. It matters because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. That is that is an incredible claim for someone to make. 
It matters because Jesus said he could forgive sin. We sin, but we can't forgive sin. No priest, no pastor, no religious leader can forgive sin. Jesus said he could. And who of us is without sin or without guilt? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. And along comes this man who says he can forgive sin. It matters because Jesus rested all these claims, these incredible claims on one event, an event that hadn't even happened yet. And one that he predicted would happen. And then it unfolded exactly as he said it would. So what's most important this morning is not colorful eggs or candy or a huge Easter dinner. Because eternity does not hinge on those things. What matters this morning is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? And does it really matter? And if it matters, are we willing to grapple with the proofs, with the facts of not only the fact of his resurrection, but the claims that rest on that? So with our time this morning, let's consider the challenge of the skeptics, the claims of Jesus, the nature of predictive prophecy, the truths attached to Jesus' claims, the proof and the practical implications. Sounds like a long outline, but I'm pretty sure we're going to move through this quickly. The challenge of the skeptics is the claim of a bodily resurrection is the claim of Jesus bodily resurrection any different than a claim of having seen an unidentified flying object. Do we put the do we put a resurrection in a UFO on sort of the same plane? In each case, we are believing a witness who claims to have seen or experienced something that we have not. So let me ask you, if your friend claimed to have seen an alien flying saucer in Nevada, and she was in every other respect a trustworthy witness, would you believe her? She has never been a conspiracy theorist or a paranormal enthusiast. Would you believe her? The answer is yes, you would, because of the witness. Now, you might not draw the same conclusions to her claim that she's making, but you would realize she's in Nevada. It's probably some advanced aero technology being tested over Area 55. You would you would draw your own conclusions, but you would believe that she saw something. Let me ask you. If that obnoxious man in the office with a reputation for spinning the truth and seeking attention made an earnest claim that he saw a heavyset man in a red fuzzy suit on his rooftop on Christmas Eve, In a sleigh that was hitched to reindeer, would you believe him? And the answer is no. Not only because of the claim that he is making, but because of his character. Three things need to be evaluated carefully in any claim. The witness, the kind of experience, and the underlying motive or purpose, or we might say truth claims that are attached to what people are saying happened. For example, your friend says she saw a UFO. What's her purpose? Oh, nothing, but it was strange, and she wanted to share it with you. In such case, you'd say, wow, that must have been incredible to see. I wonder what it was. A narcissistic man says, I saw Santa. What's his purpose? He wants attention. He wants to argue. He knows you really can't prove him wrong, and he just wants to be a dork. In such a case, we'd say, wow, you're a narcissistic dork. We wouldn't even argue with him about his claim because of who he is. Hundreds of people... Say they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Matter of fact, first Corinthians 15, verse six says this. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Listen to what it says after that. 
most of whom are still alive. Meaning you could go and interview them at that point if you wanted to. You could hear their testimony. You could evaluate and verify their claims. What's their purpose in saying that? See, that's the second thing. You have the witnesses. Now, what's their purpose in saying that? They saw him. That's why they're saying it. And he said he was the son of God, that he could forgive sin, that he was the resurrection and the life. And whoever believed in him, though they die, yet they shall live forever. And he based all those claims on a single event, his resurrection. So when he rises again the third day, just like he said it would happen, it matters. And the witnesses matter and the claims matter and the truths connected matter. So in such a case, we should say, wow, I need to consider his claims and bodily resurrection more seriously. Do you see the difference? You need to evaluate the witness, the kind of experience and the underlying motive or purpose or truth claims. Another question often posed by skeptics, by critics, and posed as a critique of Christ's unique resurrection is this. Why did resurrection seem to happen so often in Bible times? Leading contrarians, leading skeptics, leading atheists offer that. That resurrection seem so, they would say, commonplace. Doesn't that sort of remove the importance away from Christ's resurrection? Well, a quick answer is they're not commonplace. There are ten that we find in Scripture, ten literal resurrections, meaning they're not attached to a vision like Ezekiel's vision that he's recording. These are ten literal resurrections. I'm going to fly through these. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises the widow of Zarephath's son. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the son of a Shunammite woman. In 2 Kings 13, a corpse is laid on Elisha's grave, but once it touches his bones, he revives, the soldier revives and stands on his feet. In Luke 7, Jesus stops the funeral to raise a man from the dead. This is the widow of Nain's son. In Mark 5, Jesus raises a synagogue's official's 12-year-old girl. In John 11, Lazarus was raised. In Matthew 27, it says many deceased saints rose again and appeared in the city. All four Gospels record Jesus' resurrection. In Acts 9, Peter raises Tabitha. And in Acts 20, Paul raised Eutychus, who fell asleep during a long sermon, falls out of the window. Very interesting sermon. That's why we keep our windows closed here at Highlands, because Sean tends to go long. The question, though, is, does the frequency of biblical resurrections, 10, Undermine the authenticity or the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection. For example, does, does, does the fact that we have ten kind of make his seem normal? The answer is no, because resurrections were rare. Three were connected to prophets. That's important. Four were connected to Jesus. Also important. One was Jesus himself. Very important. Two were connected to leading apostles, Peter and Paul. Very important. Resurrections are not commonplace. And in each example, there's a clear lesson to be learned or a truth to be substantiated. Let me take one of these. Matthew 27, verse 52. Scripture records the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. They died. It's a euphemism for death. Who had fallen asleep were raised. Verse 53, Matthew 27. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. So Jesus has been crucified. 
after his resurrection, many come out of the tombs and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's a fantastic image of people who had been dead are walking the streets and markets of Jerusalem. Now, the critics ask, what happened to them? Why is there no mass revival recorded? Why, why are there no testimonies of families having seen grandma and grandpa or even mom and dad since, since the life expectancy was lower then? And then what happened to their bodies after that? Popular contrarian Christopher Hitchens asked this, doesn't it, that account in Matthew, rather cheapen the idea of resurrection? You know, the gospel writers are very selective in the material they recorded. They didn't record everything. And therefore, it does not cheapen the resurrection. Rather, it testifies to the monumental significance of Jesus' resurrection. Never before did you have that many people come out of the tombs and show themselves alive after Jesus' resurrection. It's almost as if it's a a mass illustration that what Jesus said he was, who he said he was, the resurrection and the life is now further verified by this mass group of people walking the markets and streets of Jerusalem. We sort of get a preview of what his sacrifice accomplished. Saints risen again and probably taken up into the heavens. Second, what are the claims attached to the resurrection? Quickly, is Jesus the Messiah? That simply means the promised one or the rescuer, the deliverer. Uh, Messiah and Christ are the same word, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. Is he the Christ? Is he God's anointed rescuer of sinful humanity or not? Because he claimed he was. Is Jesus the son of God or not? Is the one who was born in Bethlehem, ministered throughout Galilee and down into Jerusalem, is he the eternal son of God or not? Because he claimed he was. Is Jesus co-equal with the father? Is the man who interacted with Mary and Martha and the one who trained disciples like Peter and John? Is he the omniscient, omnipresent God? If we've seen him, we've seen the father. Because that's what he claimed. And that's what people wanted to stone him for. Can Jesus forgive sin? This is an incredible question. Because we've sinned again this week. We were born in sin. All have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. Can, can he really forgive sin? Because he claimed he could. Can Jesus offer eternal life? Can he quench eternal thirst? Is he the bread of life? He claimed this. Is he the only way to the Father? I mean, is his message of being the exclusive way that he is the way, the truth, the life? No one goes unto the Father except through him. Is that true? Because that's what he claimed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ matters because he claimed that he was the Son of God, claimed that he could forgive sin, claimed that he was the only way to the Father, claimed that he could give living water to those who simply ask him for it. He claimed to be the source of life, like food. He claimed to have power over death. He said he was the resurrection and the life. He also claimed this. He claimed that those who have done good will be raised to the resurrection of life. And I want you to hear this part. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Can he really deliver from that judgment? Because he said he could. So he is either what he says he is or he's not. He can either offer eternal life or he can't. 
He will either be life for those who believe in him or judgment for those who don't. Or it's a bunch of lies on the same or worse level than the boogeyman and the tooth fairy. But it can't be both. And here's what surprises many people. Jesus based all those claims, the forgiveness of sin, that he has equality with the father, that he can offer eternal life. He based all those claims on one incredulous event that hadn't even happened yet. His own bodily resurrection from the dead. And that is why philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, quote, the central question of humanity is whether or not Jesus rose again on Easter morning. How we understand that question determines how we will answer every other question. That's the question this morning. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? And if he did, we've already started to answer the so what? And the so what is it matters a lot because of the claims that are attached to the resurrection of Christ. Third, let's consider quickly the nature of predictive prophecy, because that's what Jesus uh, exampled in predicting his own death and resurrection with the exact time. And that was what, that is what was predicted about Jesus hundreds, centuries before he even was born. Predictive prophecy is a unique kind of writing, it's sort of an acid test of truth. If you have someone who can tell you the end from the beginning, how it's going to happen, how it's going to transpire, you would tend to believe that person. It's a very convincing kind of literature or genre. It foretells events before they happen, not in vague terms, so that we could sort of, you know, interpret any number of historical events as being fulfilled by that prophecy, but very specific. On Friday evening, we read together as a church, Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. 700 years before these events unfolded, Isaiah predicts the suffering of the servant Messiah, Christ. In such specific terms, it actually feels like you're reading a historical record. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every single one of those things. Christ himself predicted not only that he would die. Matter of fact, as they're moving into Jerusalem, he tells his disciples on seven different occasions that he was going to die when they went into the city. Not only that he would die, though, but when it would happen, how that death would take place and that he would rise again three days later. In addition to this. He was born, lived, and died in such a way as to fulfill so many of the predictive prophecies made about the Messiah and some of those that seemed like he had no control over and they're being fulfilled intricately and specifically. Being born in Bethlehem, prophesied by Micah. Riding in Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, prophesied by Zechariah. Being lifted up on a cross, prophesied by Jesus Christ himself, rather than stoning which almost happened, or being pushed off a cliff that almost happened in his hometown of Nazareth. It took the savagery of Rome, influenced by the Persians, to accomplish this particular brutal, horrific death called crucifixion. And Jesus knew that he would die that way. How about not having a single bone broken, even though he was beaten and flogged and scourged and fell down under the heavy cross beam of his own cross? Because if he's going to be the Passover lamb, he would have to be without spot or blemish, which means he could not have a bone broken. What about being buried in a rich man's tomb? Do you know what it took to fulfill that prophecy out of Isaiah? 
It took the urgency of lawfully observing a religious Sabbath to accomplish that particular detail. See, This morning, I'm not asking you to believe some fanciful, fanciful fabrication of lies. Some enlarged, burrowing, carrot-eating mammal who mysteriously provides candy for children. We're asking you to weigh the facts, listen to the claims Jesus made, understand a little bit about the nature of predictive prophecy, and see that what happened happened exactly as the prophets foretold and as Jesus said it would happen. Well, let's consider the actual claims then that are attached to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is only one man in history who predicted his own death, where he would die, how he would die, and that he would rise from the dead three days later and then leave those claims open to be tested, validated, observed, and proved. Notice the ramifications. Notice the truths that are sort of undone if Jesus did not rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul addresses these in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Paul systematically undoes everything we've hoped for in Christ if Jesus did not rise from the dead. He says this, verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. See, this is where the other resurrections don't cheapen the event, but support it. What God was doing was giving you a glimpse, illustrations preceding Christ's own resurrection, that there can be life after death. Paul continues, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are, I want you to hear this, you are still in your sins. Remember the claim that Jesus made that he could forgive sin? What a hope, what a blessedness to have your sins forgiven. But if he did not rise from the dead, there is no hope to have your sins forgiven. And then he says this, then those who have fallen asleep, there's that euphemism again for death. Those who have died in Christ have perished. They're gone. They're annihilated. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus, both him, Christ, and all who follow him, this is what Paul's going to say, are certifiably under a delusion of the worst kind. 1 Corinthians 15, same chapter, verse 19, he says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. Why are we to be pitied more than any other religious worshiper? Of a God or gods or no God. Why are we to be pitied most? Do you know why? Because we have hoped the highest. We have hoped to have the very righteousness of the Son of God. We have hoped to live forever in a place that not only has an eternal duration, but has a quality that is like paradise. We have hoped to be with Him in fellowship forever. Since we've hoped the highest, we are to be the most pitied if it's not true. But if this event is true, if the resurrection is a fact, then three undeniable truths surface. First, Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. And everything that he taught is validated. 
Because it was the resurrection that Jesus put forward as the sign to the Jews to authenticate his claims and identity. This is exactly what Paul is writing to the church at Rome in Romans chapter one, verse four. He says this. Jesus was, quote, declared to be the son of God in power. Okay, when? According to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is the son of God. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the one true way to the one true God. We've already said this. Jesus said of himself, he is the way, the truth and the life. No one gets to the father except through him. If he did rise from the dead, he is the one true way to the one true God. And third, faith in Jesus as savior from sin is completely and uniquely validated. That's what Paul writes. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after he says, all these things are true if Christ did not rise from the dead. But then he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits. Well, how is he the first fruits? There are other, there are other people that rose from the dead. No, he's the first of his kind because he died never to, never to die. He, he rose never to die again. And he rose to offer life to everyone else, which all the other resurrections could not do. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man also has also come the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, radical claims need radical proof. Do we have it in the scripture? Those truth claims that he made are incredible. Do we have incredible proof to support it? Anyone can claim anything, especially in the spiritual, invisible and subjectively unverifiable realm. I can claim to fly. But what I would have to do if, if, if my children questioned me, I would have to provide radical proof for that radical claim. Other religions offer simplistic and subjective tests. Here's what they say. They assure us that, they, that if we will consider their claims seriously and their teachings with a sincere heart and an open mind, the truths themselves will subject, subjectively confirm them to our own minds. That's stupid. Radical claims demand Radical proof. We're not asking anyone to just have this sort of sweet feeling wash over them to believe that Jesus is the risen Christ. We're asking you to consider the proofs that are put forward, the proofs of Jesus life that he puts forward so that you can verify his claims. Jesus repeatedly made his spiritual claims observable, testable and verifiable. For example, he changed water into wine miraculous transformation and he did it in front of other people without smoke and mirrors a matter of fact the man that was hosting that wedding banquet even commented on the quality of that wine jesus healed the blind not just people that went blind during their life but people that everyone in the village knew had been born blind and he heals them miraculous healing test testable provable observable he multiplied food in front of 5,000 men. He calmed a stormy sea, authority over nature. He healed withered hands. He wasn't just saying your heart palpitations have been healed or your migraine headaches have now gone away. He took obviously withered hands and healed them. He cast out demons. 
Not just what he thought were demons, but demons who spoke with a different voice and identified themselves. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And even his own sisters couldn't believe that miracle initially. See, these are not the illusions of popular magicians like Houdini and Copperfield, levitation in controlled environments or disappearing acts or walking on water with plexiglass, which wasn't even discovered until 1877. These are clear, miraculous events to support the claims he was making. Jesus' bodily resurrection validated who he said he was what he, and what he said he could do. He is the Son of God who could forgive sin. So we should expect, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge pin of our faith, sort of that make or break event, then there should be indisputable proof. Do we have it? Yes, there are at least 90 explicit references to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead scattered throughout every genre in the New Testament. On seven separate occasions before it even happened, Jesus foretold his own resurrection. He also foretold his own death. On five of these occasions, Jesus specified not only the fact of his coming resurrection, but also the precise timing, which means if it happened on the fourth day, he's not the Messiah. If it happened on the second day, he is not the son of God. Let me give you one of those five occasions. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the twelve, his disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He knew it would be the religious elite that would take him before secular Rome. They will condemn him to death, Jesus said, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And then he says this. Jesus says this. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And just like he said it would happen, it happened. He rose from a sealed and guarded tomb, never to die again. And think of the incredulousness of that event. The the superpower of the day, Rome, had put a guard over that tomb. It's almost as though it were being guarded by think Navy SEAL or Army Ranger or Marine Recon, nothing would have gotten near that tomb. There would not have been a missing body, and yet they cannot account for the body. And then also the multitude of eyewitnesses after the event. So it does matter. And here are the implications in conclusion. Let me, let me begin with the most important. Why does the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ matter? It matters because He, Jesus Christ, offers us, let me just use a a collection of words, right standing or forgiveness or reconciliation. They all mean something a little different, but that's why it matters. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our right standing before God or a reconciled relationship with God or the forgiveness of sin so that we can appear before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 4.25 says this, Jesus was raised for our justification. It's a legal term. The father, because of Christ's righteousness and his resurrection, can legally declare us as righteous as his son for those who place faith in him. The father affirmed Jesus' work on our behalf when he rose from the dead. He was demonstrating his approval of Jesus' sacrifice of suffering and death for our sins. 
The second implication is eternal life. Do you know for the last month, for the last two months, we have had death paraded before us on the news networks. We've had death and sickness and fear and panic pushed into our faces. You know, one of the great implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this morning that there is life after death, that you don't need to be enslaved to the fear of death. We've had the reality of sickness and death break into our lives. The threat of sickness and death crash into our stability. The fear of sickness and death unnerve us. We've heard stories of strong and weak, young and old, famous and unknown, who have died in this past month. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asks Martha this, Martha, who was grieving the death of her brother. Then he asks this, do you believe this? And guess what illustration he provided to prove his claim that he is the resurrection and the life? The resurrection of Lazarus. It provides incredible hope and joy. So we don't have to fear death. Yes, all of us have sinned. And yes, the wages of sin is death. But this does not have to plunge us into despair. Because where it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, it also says, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that brings us to the third and really connected to that idea. The third implication is that in Christ, those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior have a living hope. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Peter writes this, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, we do not have to fear of missing out on anything in this world. We don't have to do everything. We don't have to experience anything. We do not need to find ultimately ultimate delight even in the good things of this world because we are promised an eternity of delight. As a matter of fact, Peter follows that statement, that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead with this explanation to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's hard for us to comprehend that. Capture everything great you have ever experienced in this world and multiply that to the nth degree and then subtract all the heartache and suffering and disappointment. And you have only begun to understand the inheritance and the joy and the hope that awaits you as a believer in Christ. And finally this morning, Endurance through trials. We are in a trial right now. Our church, our churches are going through an enduring time of testing. Our world is in a trial right now. Peter, connected to that idea of the resurrection and a living hope, says this. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, so here's a purpose of what, one of the purposes of why we may be going through what we're going through. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not see him now, 
you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what next? We answer the so what it matters. So what next? What is the next event that we should be living in light of two verses? Revelation 1, 7. Behold. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He rose from the dead and he promised that he would return. Secondly, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Philippi so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The idea is will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus. The question for you is, will you bow to him as your savior king? Or will you simply bow to him as your king and judge? Here's how you should respond. Romans 10, 9 to 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, that he's sovereign, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the question is, have you called out to the one who is the son of God, who can forgive sin? And have you experienced the forgiveness of your sins? And do you have the living hope in your heart of experiencing eternal life after death? Jesus said he is the resurrection and the life. Even if you die, you will live. Let's pray.